Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Wednesday, January 14th, 2015. We will be doing our light episode today, but we will not be uh, going back to Genesis quite yet. I need you to hold tight on that. I found a couple of messages that I think are timely and right on the money. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of bizarre things being said out there in the name of God. And we, well, we do a lot of debunking here at Fighting for the Faith. But the other thing that we do is we try to pepper the program with good teaching, good lectures, good sermons, so that you can see the contrast between somebody who's just mangling God's Word, putting stuff in there that isn't in there, and not rightly handling the biblical text, not preaching Christ, you know, that kind of thing, and then compare that to somebody who is skillfully, carefully, prayerfully handling God's Word in a way to bring it to you in a way that's faithful to what God's Word says. And so uh, we live in a time when there is just rank apostasy running rampant in the church. Um, If it weren't so, I think I would be out of a job, at least on the radio. I'd have to (laughs) have to spend more time as a pastor, which I think would be great. But um, at the moment, yeah, that's just not the luxury that we have. But uh, what we're going to be doing today, we're going to be listening to two sermons um, by Alistair Begg. Yeah, we're going to be listening to two sermons by Alistair Begg, and uh, we'll we'll have a mini break in between them. They're they're not terribly long, so uh, but uh, they're a little bit longer than our standard first segment kind of thing. So, well, the first sermon is entitled is entitled "Preach the Word," and it's a, a sermon based upon Second Timothy chapter four verses uh, one through two. And then the next sermon is entitled Itching Ears, and it's on the next two verses, chapter four, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. One through two. And then the next sermon is entitled Itching Ears, and it's on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And I think we'll just get right to it. Open up your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Here is Alistair Begg and his sermon entitled Preach the Word. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy and to chapter 4. And we'll read the first eight verses. 
2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. If you're like me, you will have put your uh, 2015 uh, diary or calendar into operation. I, I retired. I retired uh, 2014 uh, just on sa- on Saturday there, and I went up to my room. I have uh, 27 years of these um, up uh, in my study, um, all marked up with um, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and this uh, beginning already to take on uh, the implications of commitments that already have been made. And uh, you will have done the same, or you're doing the same, because a new year brings with it fresh opportunities, new responsibilities, the possibility of new challenges. And when you think about it, it is, I think, for us as a church, a happy providence that we find ourselves in this particular passage of Scripture on this first day of a new year. Because after all, most of us, Uh, are going to be confronted not so much by an amazing vista that opens before us or a peculiar challenge that we have never yet encountered. Most of us are going to be faced and are already being faced with the inevitability of a return to the routine of life. There's something in the human spirit that can face a new challenge, that can deal with a new responsibility. It is particularly daunting to deal with with the same thing again. So the carpenter uh, returns to the same box of tools that he left uh, before the holiday. And the surgeon goes back to the same OR. And the musician is going to play the same notes. And the salesman returns to his territory and to the challenge of new figures. And the teacher, the teacher returns to the classroom. How I admire teachers especially if you had pupils like me. I never look forward to returning to the classroom as a pupil, and I certainly can't imagine what it's like to return to it as a teacher. I guess it is just a wonderful calling. And yet, I'm a teacher too. And I have colleagues along with me, and we have been charged with the responsibility of teaching here. And as someone has observed... Uh, The pulpit draws the preacher the way the sea draws the sailor. 
And when you come to a new chapter in the year, you come to a new chapter in your life, you come to a new chapter in the church, uh, you are operating on the same basis as everybody else. So what are we going to do now? So what will we do next? So what is the plan for 2015? And some people are orientated in such a way that unless you can come up with some remarkable answer to that, they've concluded that you really don't have much of a clue what you're doing. I was recalling this week, somebody asked me some years ago now, when I was about 50, uh, the gentleman said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I took that as a, as a great encouragement. And I said, I want to be what I am now, but hopefully better at it than I am now. Uh, he wasn't really impressed with that. He was looking for a much better answer than that. But I really don't have a better answer than that. Amongst all the Christmas gifts that I received, uh, one that has become a favorite immediately is is a stone, uh, just a small rock. You say, well, you must have had a pretty poor Christmas if this is your your favorite. Well, no, I had a wonderful Christmas, but but, uh, this this I like. Uh, Someone sent me a, a rock, and on it just two words, keep on, and then underneath, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. So in other words, they must have heard me quoting Lloyd-Jones to keep on, and so now they sent me this rock. In other words, a physician, heal yourself or take your own medicine. That's why I say it's a happy providence that we're here, because 2 Timothy 4 says to Timothy and all who are in the lineage of Timothy essentially this, I want you to continue, as he says in verse 14, to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. He has already told Timothy that the Scriptures are divinely inspired, that they're completely reliable, that they're totally sufficient. And as he ended chapter 3, he pointed out that they are the key to the competence and effectiveness of the man of God. And the reason that this is of such um, importance is because Paul has already identified the fact that some in the Ephesian context have gone the way of deviation. They've gone off track. Chapter 2, they have their teaching, which is spurious and spreading like gangrene. He's going to, as he continues in chapter 4, identify some who haven't gone the way so much of deviation as they've gone the way intrigued by innovation. And so he says to Timothy, I want you to make sure that you commit yourself to proclamation, to proclamation. And I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus... Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, the word there is an important imperative. It's the word that would be used of a herald who went out into the community proclaiming a message that he had been given. And this is the responsibility that Timothy is about to take on and is the responsibility that is then entrusted to all who become, under God's direction, uh, teachers and preachers of the gospel. Now, let us... Uh, summarize the opening two verses by noticing just two things. First of all, the solemnity of this charge, and then the simplicity of this charge, the solemnity of it. I often say this, but I do so purposefully, that uh, it used to be that notice boards of churches identified the fact that if you went in that building, you would find somebody there who was competent to conduct the solemnization of marriage the solemnization of marriage. If ever there was a time for putting that back on notice boards on churches, it is probably now, when we are confronted by the trivialization of marriage or the denigration of marriage. 
So solemnity is an important part of the way in which the Bible introduces us to all kinds of themes, and not least of all, to the responsibility of the preaching of God's Word. If you look at this, you will notice that there is nothing casual or inconsequential about this. I charge you, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, God the Father and God the Son are your witnesses, Timothy. You're going to exercise your ministry, not hidden away from the gaze of God. God knows you. He made you. The Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior and your King. And your ministry, I charge you to this ministry, in the presence of Almighty God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's just allow that to settle on our minds for a moment, and let me illustrate it in this way. As a young minister in Scotland, I had the privilege from time to time of being part of or present at the induction of a minister, what we call in America here the installation of a minister. And the process of induction there is a fairly formalized and traditional one. There would be at least two preachers. One would give the charge to the congregation, thereby reminding the congregation of its responsibilities to and for its new pastor. And then somebody, usually a seasoned minister, would give the charge to the incoming minister as he was about to take on the charge and responsibility of pastoral ministry. And I can remember by being struck by just how awesome and how daunting that was. Uh, there was usually later on a celebration and food and uh, some good humor. But on the occasion of the induction itself, there was nothing that could have been regarded as anything other than solemn. And it wasn't unusual for these words from Richard Baxter or words like them to be quoted by the minister giving the charge to the young man. Quotes, It is a sad thing that so many of us preach our hearers to sleep. But it is sadder still if we have studied and preached ourselves to sleep, and have talked so long against hardness of heart, till our own hearts grow hardened under the noise of our own reproofs. I can remember sitting in an occasion like that and saying, how unbelievably daunting is this? The far greater and more awesome prospect is not of having a congregation that doesn't listen to you, but of having a heart that doesn't pay attention itself to the things that you're proclaiming. So that the longer you go in teaching the Bible, the worse you get and the harder your own heart becomes. What would help you snap out of that? The solemnity of this charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Those who are alive and those who are raised to life will face the judgment of God. And the accountability that is represented in that is such that Paul himself recognizes it. Down in verse 8, he's anticipating the day of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, if you want to, if you want to deal with judgment, which you must, because we all will, 
You see, we will all face judgment. You understand that, don't you? 2 Corinthians 5. That we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive that which is done in our bodies. That we will be judged in relationship to our works. Believers will not be judged in the same way as the rest of mankind. Believers do not face the judgment as cowards shrinking from it, but rather in light of what Paul says here in verse 8, to which we will come, looking forward to the day when a crown will be given to us. But nevertheless, the Christian view of judgment makes it clear that history has a goal, that judgment protects the idea of God's goodness and of the triumph of God and of the punishing of all wrong and of the setting of justice to rights. All of that and more is represented there. But what Paul is driving home to Timothy and to all who follow in his line is this. You shouldn't be worried about being accountable to me, i.e. to the apostle. And you shouldn't worry about being accountable to your congregation in Ephesus. If you want something to be concerned about, be concerned about this, that God's your judge. And he knows the motives of your hearts. People may impugn your motives, Timothy. People may make all kinds of observations on the strength of what you do, what you say, where you go. But the fact of the matter is, your judgment is secure in God himself. And it is that sense of accountability which drives home the solemnity of it. That's why when the the writer to the Hebrews is wrapping up his letter, he says to the congregation under his care, obey your leaders and submit to them because they're really nice people. No, obey your leaders and submit to them because they're really, really gifted. No, obey your leaders and submit to them because obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. as those who will give an account. To whom? To God. To God. I remember years ago going out to lunch with a member of the congregation who was not particularly pleased with what I was doing or how I was doing it. And at one point in a restaurant that has now been knocked down mercifully in Solon, he said to me in a a spirit of frustration, listen, he says, listen, I can stand behind a box and talk just as well as you. And I realized in that moment, he hasn't a clue. He does not have a clue about the notion of the call of God to the preaching and teaching ministry. And I remember saying to him, do you think that's what I do? He said, yes. I said, well, actually, no. I'm entrusted with the responsibility to keep watch over your soul and your wife's soul and your son and your daughter's souls, and I'm going to give an account, not to you, but I'm going to give an account to God. That is solemn. He wouldn't say that today. I'm not going to tell you who it is. He's a good friend. He was a good friend then. He's been a good friend all the way through. But he finally woke up. He started reading his Bible. Makes all the difference. Now, Murray McShane, whom I quoted last week, understood this as well. In fact, as you, as you trace the line in effective pulpit ministry, whether it lasted a long time or a short time, you will find that those who exercised effective teaching of the Bible uh, did so in light of the judgment and appearing of Jesus. Murray McShane, who died at 29, as we always rehearse, uh, wrote a wonderful poem, which in turn became a hymn, which begins, When this passing world is done... 
when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And in one of the stanzas it begins, and when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. I think you get something of the solemnity of this. This Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, is going to appear and his kingdom will be consummated. And so he says, I'm setting this before you, Timothy, and I want you to understand the solemnity of what I'm saying, and also, secondly, to understand the simplicity of what I'm saying. What is he saying? In a phrase, preach the word. There's actually a series of imperatives here. Preach, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and in, chapter, and in verse 5, uh, another, another group of four, I think it is. You can check yourselves. But what, are you, what, are, what is Timothy to do in Ephesus? Well, he's to preach the word. We often rehearse the story of the curate to the bishop, don't we? Who sends a postcard, dear bishop, I'm going to preach for the first time in my new church next Sunday. What should I preach about? And the bishop sends a postcard back that just says, dear curate, preach about God and preach about 20 minutes. And it was, it was advice well given and poorly heeded by most of us. Most of us have got the first part correct and the second part wrong. Preach the word. Well, Timothy would be in no doubt now about what Paul meant. He has spoken to him throughout his letter about the pattern of sound words that he's to hold to, uh, the good deposit that he is to guard, the word of truth that he is to proclaim, the sacred writings that he has known from his infancy. All of that underpins the simplicity of this charge, preach the word. In other words, Timothy, I want you to teach the Old Testament scriptures, and I want you to teach in turn the things that you've learned from me and that you will learn from the other apostles. You will notice that he's not charged with coming up with something. If I had, I was going to say the same thing. I won't say that again. It, it, it's amazing how many times I meet somebody in the course of a week, and they'll say to me, oh, by the way, I've always wanted to ask you, how do you come up with something all the time? How do you come up with something? Even the phrase is, is a strange phrase. I said, I don't come up with something. Well, you've got to come up with something. I mean, you've been there a long time. Well, no, I don't come up with something. God has come down with something. He has conveyed something. That's why we have the Bible. What a horrible tyranny to have to come up with something. Spending your whole week going, oh, no. I got 48 hours, 24 hours, 12 hours. Six hours to Tulsa, whatever it is, and where we go. No. No, I'm glad that we began at the beginning all these years ago as a church and said, well, let's just try and study the Bible. That way I'm accountable to the Scriptures, and in some measure I'm accountable to you, and we're accountable to one another underneath the Scriptures. Because you know that if we finish verse 2 today, we should be at verse 3 next Sunday. Because verse 3 follows verse 2. But let's try and finish verse 2. He's not charged with coming up with something, but rather declaring the message that God has spoken. I know you're as intrigued as I am about where all my hymnody comes from. I don't even know where it all comes from. And every so often I find a hymn is in my head, and then I go in search of it, and I'm amazed where it comes from. I, I had the experience just last evening as I was scribbling. And... Um, and a phrase came into mind when I was thinking about this. I don't come up with it. It comes down to me. And in essentially, I, the line came, 
well, it is a message from God. And then I went to, I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why the guy put hallelujah in there. I think it's just the syntax, you know. So I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah. This message unto you I give. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah. And the message is to look and live. I've known that since forever. So I went to look for where did it come from? I found it came from a man called William Ogden, who was born in Franklin County in Ohio in 1841. Never met him in my life. And in the Civil War, he was part of the Indiana Volunteer Infantry because his family moved to Indiana when he was a young man. But in the course of that, he exercised, if you like, a heraldic ministry amongst his friends. And this is what he said. I've got a message from the Lord. And here's a message. Look and live. Taking that from the Old Testament picture of the serpent in the wilderness, where in order to be freed from their condition, they were instructed not to scrub themselves, wash themselves, fix themselves, meditate themselves, but to look and to live. And he says, and this is the message. Look and you will live. It remains the message. Secular man says, I never heard anything so ridiculous in all my life. It's got to be far more elaborate than that. It's got to involve me far more than that. No, it doesn't at all. Here is the message. Now, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go out and proclaim this message. What God has spoken in the apostles has been bequeathed to us in the Bible. So we are to preach the word and nothing but the word. And when are we to do it? Well, he tells us when we're to do it. We're to do it ready, in season, and out of season. Be ready. I think the notion of readiness, I ready, A-Y-E ready, is part of the Canadian Navy, but I haven't checked. It's certainly the theme and the symbol of my soccer team from Glasgow. Unfortunately, my team hasn't been ready for a number of years, (laughs) despite having on its crest that it is always ready. Could have fooled me the last time I saw them play. But anyway, they're supposed to be ready. And that's what he's saying here. It's standing by, Captain. Ready. Ready when you are. That's the whole thing. So that, so that you, the, the pastor doesn't need to be cajoled into preaching. He doesn't need to be cajoled and lured. And, 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 no, no, no. He's just ready. He's ready. Whether he feels like it or whether he doesn't feel like it. That's the whole point here. In season and out of season. Paul understood for himself. There were seasons where it was more delightful, other times where it was more daunting. There would be times when it was discouraging. And what he's to do is to press the message home on all occasions, deeming it convenient or inconvenient. Now, let's just, let's just reinforce this. Realize how, how straightforward, how simple this is, and yet how unusual it is. How unusual it is for a man to stay the course as a Bible teacher. To just keep teaching the Bible. What he's saying to him is this. I want you to preach the word, Timothy. If the environment is marked by receptivity or of hostility... 
You don't, you're not just looking for the receptive opportunity so that you can go and preach. You must preach the word whether it is receptive or hostile. You must preach the word of God when the prospect of it fills you with delight, but also when it fills you with dread. Now, let me just say a word to my fellow pastors who are within earshot of what I'm saying now. Don't let's kid ourselves. There are seasons in our souls. There are seasons in a congregation. There are seasons in the framework of life that make it far more daunting than delightful to stick with the task. I often say to my wife, I should have become a train driver. Where do you come up with this? I said, well, I'd like to be a train driver. You know, then I could sing Willie Nelson songs while I'm going, you know. (laughs) Riding on the city of New Orleans. And because all you do, as far as I can tell, I don't mean to demean train drivers, but you're up there by yourself, number one. It's pretty good. You shut the door and you're pretty well online. I mean, you, you, there's, not, there's not a lot of decisions. You can start it or stop it. And you don't have to listen to anybody. And you don't have to talk to anybody. And if you're thoroughly depressed, you can just cry as you're going down the line. <laughs> no one will know as long as you stop at the station. <laughs> you stop at the station and start again. <laughs> all over again. But you can't do that here. You just got to preach. Preach though your heart is breaking. Preach when it is delightful, when it is dreadful. Preach when your listeners are attuned to what you're saying. And preach when your listeners tune out what you're saying. Preach when the crowds are growing. Preach when the congregation is dwindling. Preach. Why? Because it's God's Word. And God's Word always accomplishes its purposes. It's so simple. It's not that Paul is giving a warrant here for some kind of brusqueness or rudeness. Well, I'm just going to preach whether they want to hear it or not. No. What he's saying here is an appeal against laziness. Laziness. Because you will notice that as he said in verse 16, Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. Now he comes round to it again, and he says, and the elements in preaching the word, as you're ready in and out of season, will be to prove or to reprove. Helping people think properly about the Bible. The doubtful are in need of solid arguments. They're in need of reinforcements. Therefore, you're going to have to speak apologetically and prove and reprove their thinking. Correcting those who are thinking wrongly or who are living wrongly. It's not easy to say these things in correction. But correcting our own souls and exercising a ministry of correction and also a ministry of encouragement. Encouraging people, as Paul does, and as he begins at First Thessalonians. Remember, in the opening chapter of Thessalonians, and we're going to study it here as a church in our small groups. Uh, he says, "I'm so encouraged because of your, uh, your your faith that functions, and your love that labors, and your hope that hangs on. Faith, hope, and love present in the Thessalonian context. What an encouragement it must have been for them." 
But it is such a task, isn't it? And the nature of the task, to reprove, rebuke, to exhort, is then to be dealt with in a manner that is marked by patience and by teaching. Wouldn't it have been better if it just said with a wee bit of patience? Why does it have to be complete patience? <laughs> with complete patience. How, how, how patient are you? Are you using the utmost patience in your teaching? The NIV has with great patience and careful instruction. Jim Boyce now in heaven, is the one who said to me years ago, as a young man, you will tend to overestimate what you can accomplish in a year, and you will underestimate what you can accomplish in five years. So be patient. To be a teacher, I think, demands patience. Whether you're teaching tiny children or big children. Because not everyone gets it. Not everyone gets it at the same level. Some people apparently never get it. And then one day they get it, like in My Fair Lady. By George. I think she's got it. Do you remember that great moment in, in My Fair Lady? It's so much fun. When she says, The rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain." And that's the great denouement, because up until that time, she's all been like, like and tyke, and all I want is a room somewhere. <laughs> and he's been teaching her, remember, he's, he's so consumed with it. Higgins, Higgins gives her six marbles to put in her mouth, and then quote poetry. <laughs> and then he says, by George, I think she's got it. And some of you are school teachers or university professors, that's been your great joy in life. That somewhere along the line, one of those characters that made it out of your class by the skin of their pants has, has met you in the thoroughfare and has said, oh, I, I finally got what you were on about. And it may even have become a teacher themselves. Paul says, now, Timothy, if you think about this context in Ephesus, it's daunting without any question at all. I want you to make sure that you're patient. And I want you to make sure that you're operating as carefully as you are patiently. In other words, it demands an approach to the Bible that is demanding. That if you, if, if you want to come up with an approach to teaching the Bible that is like uh, three illustrations, two jokes, and the odd practical idea... You never need to study again in your life. You just, they, 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 they abound everywhere. There's books with all of that stuff. And it can be like both sides now, you know, and leave them laughing when they go. And if you care, don't let them know. Don't give yourself away. Doesn't matter. But no, this is solemn. This is straightforward. This is demanding. Sensible, careful, intelligent, instruction. Well, it's the first Sunday of the year, and, and here we are, same old thing. Right? I mean, you're like, are you kidding me, Peg? We're, do, we're, we're doing the same thing again? Yeah. And as God spares me, we'll be doing the same thing again next year. 
Why? Because it's a great idea? No. If you think about it, this kind of didactic instruction is is like a dinosaur. I mean, do you know any place where anybody is able to speak for more than 20 minutes and hold anybody's attention? It's certainly not a State of the Union address. It's not in your it's not in your average class. But every so often the sound of God appears across the horizon and people suddenly realize this must be God himself who speaks and that's the whole point. It is. In the old days at the churches in Scotland, they had that sign, Sir, we would see Jesus. I think actually it could equally be, Sir, we would hear Jesus. We want to hear from Jesus. Jesus is ultimately the preacher. We preach his word. So let me finish in this way. First of all, a word to our pastoral team, of which I am a part. It is a happy providence that we've arrived at 2 Timothy chapter 4 on this first Sunday of the new year. It is a word for our pastoral team to faithfully proclaim the word of God in light of the judgment of God, whatever the response of the people of God. To proclaim the word of God in light of the judgment of God, whatever the response of the people of God. That's for the pastoral team. And a word for the congregation that we might prayerfully support our pastors as they preach the word of God and as we receive it gladly as from God. So what'd you think? All right, we're going to take a break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the next sermon in the series on this look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 entitled Itching Ears. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Um, Mr. Sunshine, your three o'clock appointment is here. Oh, good. Send them right on in. Will do, Mr. Sunshine. Oh, dear, I've completely forgotten who I'm meeting. Let's just see who it is. Let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, Mr. Brightweight was at one o'clock. Miss Woodhead was at two. And at three, we have... No. Hello? 
dear, not again. Sorry about that. It was merely a reflex action. I'm trying to get that fixed. So, anyway, why are you here today? I was assigned to you again after my attitude didn't approve last time. Did you forget already? It must be because you don't like me. Of course I don't. Uh, uh, hate you. Nobody hates you here. We all love it when you're not around. I, 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 I mean, uh... <laughs> Let's get down to business. We're here to discuss how you performed in our newest Lead Like Jesus program. I'll just pull up the complaint file here. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. Approximately three hours later. So after you failed to walk on the lake, you then disappeared for two weeks and were luckily found by hikers in the mountain who claim they found you deliriously raving about how you refused to turn a rock into bread. Do you have anything to say for yourself? But I thought I was leading like Jesus, like you told me to. <sighs> I think you failed to see the purpose of this ministry outreach. There are a few accounts that even I can't even understand. Here, explain this one right here. Well, in Matthew 21, Jesus cursed a fig tree and it withered away because it didn't bear any fruit. So my neighbor down the street planted a lemon tree about three years ago, and I've never seen any lemons on it. So I walked over and cursed it, but it wouldn't die, so I used sulfuric acid instead. What are you doing to my tree? You maniac! Get out of my yard! Uh... What? Why is my tree melting? Sir, do you have a moment to talk about the Lead Like Jesus program? No, I don't have time to! Stop changing the subject! Get off my lawn! Stop! 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 I, I get it! Okay, how on earth did you get banned for life from the local soup kitchen? Well, remember the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14? Yes, we all know the story. You don't mean to tell me. Well... Alright, Mildred, we have a large shipment of food that just came in. We need you to direct the men to put it where it all belongs. Right. Where do you want it all? Oh, sir, we don't need your food today. I'm just going to leave like Jesus and have God provide these people with food. What? If you don't mind me saying, but I can't go provide all the food on this heavily laden truck. It's okay. My pastor had a vision that this would work. Well, that settles it. Men, we've got the wrong place. We thought this was a soup kitchen, but it turns out that this is a loony bin. Add out! Uh, Mildred, where's the food? Don't worry, this is all the food we need. That's just two Ritz crackers and three dead goldfish. I'm leading like Jesus. If you just give me a wicker basket, I'll lift it up and God will multiply it. The only thing that's going to multiply is the number of bruises on your face. Good gravy! 
That's not what you're supposed to be doing at all! But I'm supposed to... I know! You're supposed to lead like Jesus! But you've clearly took this too literally! And this last one about you making a whip from electrical cords and chasing the poor baristas from the coffee shop in the church foyer while screaming something about brood of vipers and uh, turning God's house into a den of robbers is, is taking it too far! Well... No! Not again! No more flashbacks! Why do you keep getting these anyway? Sunshine, open up. This is the police. We received an anonymous phone call from biblical repairmen about you corrupting the youth and forcing them to do terrible things in the name of God. Curse you, anonymous caller! I can't go back to prison! You'll never take me alive, coppers! Does this mean our session is over? Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about the Bowflex Max Trainer. Now, if you're like me and you want to stay fit and you want to exercise and keep active, uh, but you don't have hours to dedicate going to the gym, well, consider the Bowflex Max Trainer. I've been able to use this piece of equipment over the last nine weeks, and I've been consistently able to lose a pound a week on the Bowflex Max Trainer. And some days I was only able to exercise for 14 minutes. Yeah, that's right. There's a 14-minute workout on this thing that will leave you dripping with sweat. It uses uh, interval training to kind of boost your metabolism up, and the afterburn effect on this thing is actually quite amazing. So if you'd like more information about the Bowflex Max Trainer, visit fightingforthefaith.com, and along the side, you'll see an advertisement for the Bowflex there on our website. Click on that, head on over to the Bowflex site, and check out the information regarding the Bowflex Max Trainer trainer. It has been a fantastic piece of equipment for me, and I'm hoping that if you're looking for a piece of equipment that will work for you and you have limited time, this will help meet those needs. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Bowflex ad, and get your Max Trainer today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with those pastors who seem to be preoccupied with everything other than, you know, preaching the word and more interested in scratching itching ears. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota. 
zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. The next sermon we're going to be listening to by Alistair Begg on scratching itching ears uh, from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Here we go. Uh, the verses to which I should like to draw your attention are verses 3 and 4 of 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 and 4 read, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Father, we pray that as we turn to the Bible, that you will open our eyes and grant to us understanding in our minds and faith and trust. Accomplish your purposes, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. A couple of uh, months ago now, I received a call from my doctor's office informing me in a kindly manner that my doctor would no longer prescribe for me what I use as a daily medication if I failed for the third year in a row to show up for my annual physical. (laughs) So I decided I'll get a different doctor. (laughs) One who will let me come when I want and enjoy any kind of diet I choose and pretty well just please myself. Well, of course, I didn't do that. I very quickly made an appointment, and my physical will come up towards the end of February. I realized that he had my best interest in heart. It would be absolute foolishness on my part, perhaps even life-threatening on my part, to take the sound advice that was represented in that call, in that word, and set it aside. I think all of us would concur with that. And to the extent that we understand that on a physical level— then it ought not to be difficult for us to realize just how far more significant that reality is when it comes to the spiritual realm. When Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter, he encourages him in relationship not only to his own physical well-being, but also to his spiritual health. And in the seventh verse of chapter 4, paraphrased by J.B. Phillips, he says to Timothy, "...physical fitness has a certain value." But spiritual fitness is essential both for this life and for the life to come. And therefore, if one were to uh, be prepared to play fast and loose with our own physical frames, surely we would recognize the solemnity that is involved in thinking about the fact that we have a soul that is eternal. In fact, the only part of our existence that will pass into eternity is the very essence of who we are, our souls. And that's why the charge that Paul gave to Timothy, which we noted last time, came across with such solemnity. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the one who's going to judge the living and the dead, in relationship to the fact that he's going to appear and he's going to consummate his kingdom. It's all of that that is wrapped up. Because as we saw the minister of God uh, looks over the lives entrusted to his care as caring for their souls 
as someone who must give an account. I don't think we really give very much thought to our souls, do we? Somebody sent me a letter this week. One of my friends whom I admire very much, he's an older man, and he was quoting to me when the fact that people ask him now in his 80s, how are you? And he said that he's been reading the Puritans, and he realized that the Puritans answered that in terms of their souls. And, they, and, and so they would say, you know, physically I may be actually wasting away or deteriorating, but in relationship to my soul, it is, it is well with my soul. I think we tend to think of it the wrong way around, don't we? Believing somehow or another that the things that are seen are real, and the things that are unseen are somehow unreal. When in point of fact, the Bible reverses it and says the things that we can see are transient, they're ephemeral, and the things that we can't see are the things that are eternal. Now, it was in light of those verities that he had given him this charge, a solemn charge and a simple charge, uh, just a phrase, preach the word, preach the word. Christopher Ashe, whom we uh, admire and read and have benefited from in his visits, in his book, The Priority of Preaching, makes the point that preaching, preaching is culturally neutral. It's culturally neutral. In other words, it's not tied to any particular dimension of culture or life. You don't have to have been to a certain college, or you don't have to be equipped with a certain mental faculty. You don't have to have a peculiar interest in investigative study in order to listen to preaching. That the, that the authoritative teaching of an individual from the Bible is something that everybody can do, and every culture knows what it is. And that actually is different from, for example, interactive Bible study. Because in interactive Bible study, it isn't culturally neutral. You have to possess either interest or capacity or whatever it might be in order to engage in that activity. And not everybody finds it as easy to do. There are actually some studies in the UK where the students of, uh, for example, Oxford and Cambridge, in combining in interactive Bible study with students from lesser universities in the Oxbridge area, have discovered that the overawing presence of the Oxbridge students silenced the students from the inferior universities and from the technical colleges. But the same students could sit together under the authoritative teaching of the Bible, because it's culturally neutral, demands nothing of them except two ears and a responsive heart. Now, I'll leave you to think these things out. I thought it was important simply to make this point, that regular expository preaching of the Bible is the staple diet of a healthy church. It's a staple diet of a healthy church. I, I guarantee you, I can take you anywhere in the world, and if we find health in the church— Whatever nation, whatever city in the world, I guarantee you, you will find the faithful teaching of the Bible. I take you back to my own country, and we can go from closed building to closed building to open building to open building. And the thing that has the building open and the people in it is directly related to the teaching of the Bible. Somebody gave me some books this morning, for which I am very, very thankful. And included in that, there was a quote that I didn't know from one of my Scottish forebears. And the quote is this, No teacher must find it a trouble to go over and over again the great basics of the Christian faith, for that is the way to ensure the safety 
of the hearers. I find that very helpful. Now, why is this uh, charge then so important? Well, he tells us in verses 3 and 4. I have, I, I've given you a charge that you need to heed, and now let me tell you, he says, of a challenge that you're going to face. This is not some remote future for Timothy. Uh, this is something that he has already identified in his first letter and now in his second. And he's making aware, making Timothy aware of what he has previously taught him. There have been those, he says, in chapter 2, whose uh, influence in the church was absolutely useless. They were involved in irreverent babble. Their babble led people into ungodliness. Uh, their, their teaching spread like sepsis from a wound. It was like gangrene going through a body. Absolutely dreadful. And, and at its very basis was the fact that these individuals had swerved from the truth. They had swerved from the truth. They're no longer uh, holding the line in relationship to orthodoxy. And now he's warning Timothy and preparing Timothy for the fact that when he preaches, as he's going to do now because Paul is going to leave him, he reads to realize that he's not simply going to be faced with those whose minds may wander while he's teaching, but they will actually physically depart from him. He should anticipate that they will give up his theology in search of mythology. You have the text in front of you. You can look at it and see whether that's an apt summary of what he's saying. They will depart from the truth, and they will embrace error. Now, here's the thing to notice. This is not a diatribe about the surrounding culture. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the people in the church, the people who are sitting in a congregation such as this this morning, 2015, who may find within themselves the seeds of declension and of departure, who find themselves so pressed upon by the thought forms and worldviews that are essentially secular, that if one is not careful, one may find oneself completely undermined as a result of that, unless holding firmly to the truth we've been taught. Now, it's straightforward. I, it hardly needs any kind of uh, outline, does it? The time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. There's nothing hard to understand about that, is it? They, they just won't put up with it. Now, we, we've noticed this word sound in the past. If you turn back just one page, you'll see that in verse 13 of chapter 1, he had urged Timothy to follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. It simply means healthy, as opposed to unhealthy. Uh, here, these, these are the words that will uh, find the body uh, growing in its health and in its usefulness. He, he'd, he had mentioned, it, if you turn back one other page to chapter 6 of, of 1 Timothy 1, uh, he had said to him there, teach and urge these things, 1 Timothy 6, 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the, here's the adjective again, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in their minds, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? And what does it all stem from? 
It stems from the fact that they do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they have deviated. Now, every so often when you use that GPS thing, depending on how good your GPS is, the lady goes crazy on you. If you start, if you start to disobey her. You know, she says, get off in 300 feet. I said, I don't want to get off in 300 feet. I know, I know the journey better than she does. So I go past her. Then she either says, make a U-turn at your earliest convenience. And I said, no, I don't want to. I talk to her always in the car. I said, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And then, and then you know how it goes from there. Well, you see, these people are about to drive past the exit. And the Word of God says, no, don't do that. And they speak back. They say, no, no, I want to do that. I like it better this way. And there's a direct correlation, you will notice, between teaching a different doctrine and living a different lifestyle. If, you do, if they do not hold to the different doctrine, if they don't hold to the true doctrine of Jesus but embrace a different doctrine, then it will not be a doctrine that accords with godliness. You see, the people, the people to whom um, uh, Timothy is ministering were confused at least on two fronts. They were morally confused and they were doctrinally confused. They were confused about what they really ought to believe, and therefore they were confused about how they really ought to behave. Because our belief and our behavior are interwoven. Paul makes that point for Timothy, doesn't he? First Timothy again, 4. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. In this, his final letter, he's able to say to Timothy, and you know about my life. You know not only what I said, but you also know my life. There is a direct relationship between a deviation from the truth and that's impact then in the moral consensus of a church or of individual lives. People are not going to be tuning in, says uh, Paul to Timothy, to the kind of teaching which makes them healthy and useful. Instead, you will discover that they have itchy ears and uh, their ears are tuned not to serious, but to curious. Some of you have the serious on your, on your car as well. Uh, well, this is, this is, they wouldn't be tuned into serious radio. They'd be tuned into curious radio. Because these are the kind of people who are always looking for something that's fascinating. I'm, I'm always interested. People use the word fascinating. Everything's fascinating, really. Well, if everything's fascinating, nothing is fascinating. So, anyway, there's a fascinating, intriguing, uh, speculative, uh, spicy you know, all these kind of things. There's some, some spicy theological insights. They're just a rich aroma coming out from wherever it is. And what do they do? Well, they just try and find as many of these people to teach them as much of this as they possibly can. That's the significance of this picture. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And the Greek is actually, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They'll, get, they'll just get more and more and more of them. It's not that they just go for one new teacher. They say, no, no, this one's good, and that one's good, and so on. I wonder, did he, did he couldn't have anticipated the internet, could he? I mean, he couldn't have imagined Google. It would be bad enough in Ephesus. There's a few people that they know teaching. Goodness gracious, you ought to try it now, I would say to Paul. Look at this. Because in a minute, you can go. In a, in, a, in a nanosecond, you can go and, 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 and find teachers to accommodate every notion you've ever had in your life. If you look hard enough, you'll find somebody to tell you exactly what you want to hear. That's why most people don't come for counsel to be counseled. They come in order to be told what they want to hear. And if they don't hear what they want to hear, then they go find somebody else who can tell them what they want to hear. 
That's not being counseled. That's just, a, it's like the way we listen to television. It's not to actually consider things. It's just to rearrange our prejudices. And these people just heap this stuff up. It fits with the notion that we saw earlier of weak-willed women who are burdened down by all kinds of sins and led astray by various passions. That's in chapter 3. Actually, the verbal root is the same between the two sections in, 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 the, in the Greek New Testament. So you see what the picture is. See, when people stop believing in the truth of God's Word, they usually don't believe nothing. They just start to believe everything. So they start to accommodate all kinds of notions. And you notice the correlation here. They will accumulate for themselves teachers who will accommodate their passions. This is what I want to be. Oh, well, we can help you with that. As opposed to, well, actually, this is what the Bible says. Now, Dick Lucas, who's a great favorite of all of us, I think, it's sometime since he's been here and probably he won't come back. We'll have to wait to see him in heaven unless we go to London. But when he's been with us in the past, and especially in the early days, um, he would draw for us. He was very um, proud of his artwork. And one, and one of his great pieces of art uh, is, is a single line. He would take just a, a marker on a whiteboard and he would just draw a line uh, bisecting uh, the board. And then he would stand back and say, what do you think of that? And we would say, wow, it's a very nice line. And he said, yes, it's a wonderful line. And then we wait for his point. And then he would draw an arrow above the line, pointing up. Then he would draw an arrow below the line, pointing down. And he said, Here, here's, the, here's the thing, fellas. The line is the instruction of Scripture, unvarnished, unfiddled with. The history of the church is the history of those who are going to say to the people, the answer actually lies above the line, which is usually some peculiar emphasis, some Jesus plus, Bible plus approach. Or the answer lies below the line, which is the essence of liberal scholarship. And the great temptation and the story of church history is the story of those who have deviated from the line. And so he would say to us as younger men, Hold the line. Whatever else you do, do not succumb to the temptation to go below it into liberalism. Do not succumb to the temptation to go above it into fanaticism. Just hold the line. Now, Paul says to Timothy, here's your problem. These people that you're going to be preaching to, they're not going to hold the line. They're going to ac accumulate for themselves teachers who will consider it a, per a privilege to let them have whatever it is they want. Now, Timothy was in the first century. We're in the 21st century. Isaiah was, what, six or seven centuries B.C. And what do you discover when you read the Bible, when you read church history? That this is not a peculiar phenomenon, at least not peculiar, to first century Ephesus. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament, from the prophecy of Isaiah. If you'd like to turn to it, it's Isaiah chapter 30. And um, the context is that the people of God have rejected the instruction of the prophet of God, namely Isaiah. And the reason that they have rejected his word is not because of any lack of clarity on his part, but actually he's just been a little bit too clear. It's, uh, too, it's too easy to understand what he has to say and too difficult to accept what he has to say. Uh, they didn't actually want him to stop preaching, 
They just wanted him to preach according to their passions. They just wanted him to preach in a manner that they would be able to live with. Wouldn't alter anything at all. So I'll look at it as it's recorded for us. Verse 9, Isaiah 30. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Now, they can't understand is that they don't want to hear. They say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Tell us smooth things. I, I, I would not like that as an adjective to describe myself or any one of my pastoral team. We may be smooth in terms of uh, the absence of facial hair, but that's as smooth as I think we would like to be. I'm not sure I find it as a plus, unless, of course, uh, you're, you're a, a f- you, you finish furniture or something. That would be, that would be fine. But now the terminology between uh, the centuries before Jesus and now here in the first century is the same, isn't it? In Isaiah, they turn aside from the path, and in Timothy, they turn away from listening to the truth. So, in other words, he's describing a certain kind of group of people that that he's going to encounter as he operates. Now, remember, when he took his leave from the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20, he said to them, from among your own group will come people who draw away people after them. They'll they'll teach all kinds of things. They'll be like like wolves emerging in the the middle of uh, um, sheep. And now here's Timothy, and he's confronted by this very thing. The congregations then selecting their pastors, provided their pastors will accommodate their passions, tell them what they want to hear. They're far more interested in novelty than they're interested in orthodoxy. You say, well, this all seems so very far away. Really? I don't think so. I think it seems very, very close, especially living as we do in Cleveland or in the greater Cleveland area. Because we have the dubious distinction of being the location for the headquarters of the most liberal Protestant denomination in the entire United States, namely the United Church of Christ. I don't say that to be controversial or to be unkind in any way. I, just, uh, I, just, I, can, I can quote to you from their own materials, and I'm sure they would be happy to quote from mine and disdain them. Therefore, I'd be happy to let you know that when they say what they say, Uh, what they're saying, you need to understand. Their marketing slogan at the present time is, as you've seen it driving around, God is still speaking. Well, you say, well, that's fair enough, isn't it? Isn't that what you're saying? Didn't you pray this morning as we turn to the Bible, speak, Lord? So presumably he's still speaking. Isn't that just what they're saying? No, it's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that God is speaking beyond what he has said in the Bible, and that he's actually decided to contradict himself. What they mean by this, quotes, the still-speaking God that the United Church of Christ has heard has told them something new. Okay? Now, we have just gone below the line. Apparently, he's told them something new about sexuality. That's why they're happy to marry 
men to men and women to women. He told them something new about the sufficiency of the Bible. That's why they're happy to set it aside at a moment's notice. And actually, the tagline for their uh, marketing slogan is, never place a period where God has placed a comma. Whoa. And where did that come from? That actually came... Do you remember George Burns with a cigar? Do you remember Goodnight Gracie? That's her line. Gracie Burns came up with that line in another context entirely. But they said, oh, this, this is perfect. Never place a full stop where God has placed a comma. You read your Bible, and you say to yourself, let's read the context of 2 Timothy 4 in relationship to that kind of thing. And what do you find? You find, as you trace the history of the UCC, which goes only into the 50s, it's an amalgamation of a variety of congregations that have all given up on the Bible. They've all decided, no, we don't have to say what the Bible says. We don't have to do what the Bible says. We believe that God is saying something entirely differently from what he said. Now, I don't know where you are this morning in your thinking, but I'm standing with Martin Luther. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you unto Jesus for refuge of fled? In other words, he has given to us his final statement in the Word. We don't worship the Word. We don't worship the Bible. We don't believe, as the UCC dogma says, that God has been trapped inside a, le- a leather-bound edition. That's the way they put it. You, you feel sorry for these people who believe that God is trapped within his book. He's not trapped within his book. But every deviation from his book is either one that takes us above the line or below the line, turning people away from biblical revelation and turning them in to speculation. See, these people are in search of a spirituality that is disconnected from biblical truth. That's really the issue of it. Every time, there's hardly a week passes, if you move in the community at all, if you let it be known that you have any interest in in spiritual or religious things, you will find somebody who will say to you, well, I'm a very spiritual person, but of course I have no time for the Bible at all. And then we have to talk with that. We've got to unpack that. Why is that? What does that mean? And so on. Here comes the prophet. He speaks the Word of God. So we don't want to have the Word of God. Tell us smooth things. Here is the Word of God that has been left by the apostles in its doctrine that is now inscripturated in the New Testament. This is what it says about the nature of man. This is what it says about the doctrine of creation. Read, for example, if you're doing Murray McShane, read Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, as we were reading earlier in the week. Where were we? Genesis, Genesis 9, where it was. I said, yeah, it just struck me so forcibly. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Listen to this. The fear of you And the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. That's the doctrine of creation. Because man is made in the image of God. Man is not a turbocharged monkey. Man is not fighting for his existence alongside the deer. They're not allowed to eat my hostas. Genesis 9 says so. But if your view of the world says your existence has to fight for itself and that you can't tell your neighbor to take their dog on a long vacation 
and to somewhere far away because, because the, the dog is only doing what dogs do. Yeah, but dogs are supposed to do what we tell them to do. Now, do you want a doctrine of human speculation, or do you want a doctrine of creation? I mean, it's, that's just where it is. You, can, you have to work it out somehow. Spiritual engagement disconnected from biblical truth. Jeremiah says the same thing. Listen to this. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Whoa, what's that? The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their discretion. Listen. And my people love to have it so. That's the problem. That's the problem. You see, the problem ultimately is not the prophets or the priests. It's the people. That's why I'm working so hard to teach you these things. So that after my departure, you will also be able to hold to these things. So that the children that are in our nursery this morning will, will, will rise up and they will hold to these things. Because I always tell you, you're only a few years away from this place becoming a carpet sale room. And it would become that as a result of a declension from the truth. Either going above it or going below it. You say, well, that's a, that's a, little, that's a little extreme, is it not? I don't think it is. Because if you think about it, the biblical assessment of man, what the Bible says about us as men and women, is not naturally appealing. You know, if you want to appeal to people in the Sugaring Valley, you probably shouldn't tell them what the Bible says about them. Because what the Bible says about us all is this. One, I'm sinful. Two, I'm guilty. Three, I'm responsible. And four, I'm lost. Have a great day. See, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't do that. You can't do that. If you want to do have a great day, you're going to have to say, well, you're not really sinful. You just, you know, a few things happen to you. And you know, after all, you're a combination of, you know, molecular, structural, and psychological imbalance. No, no, you're sinful. You're sinful. And you're guilty. And you can't fix it. And you're responsible for it. You can't blame it on your grandmother. And you're lost. You want to make it really clear? Bring to mind now your favorite grandchild, your newest one, the tiny one with the big eyes and the wriggling and everything that goes along with it. Think of all of their potential. Think of all of their capacity. Bring them before your mind's eye. Sit them on a stool in front of you and say to yourself, this little girl is sinful guilty, responsible, and lost. And she needs a Savior. She needs a Savior more than she needs swimming lessons. She needs a Savior more than she's in track. She needs a Savior more than she goes to the best university in America. All those things may be coming and going, but the fact is she needs a Savior. That's at the very heart of things. That's why I say to you that... The biblical statement of the nature of man, the view of the world, broken. There's an amazing headline this morning in the BBC. I wrote it down. A broken program for a broken people. It's describing the circumstances that is that are so devastating in terms of the social implications of, of uh, trafficking and, 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 and all manner of things. And, and, the, and the, the journalist says, this is a broken program for a broken people. Well, is it anybody can fix it? 
Yeah, but it's going to be, you're not going to like the way it gets fixed. Come back to the doctor again. The doctor says, it's not a problem. You have congestive heart failure, but I didn't want to tell you that, so I just told you, you got a little bit of a little bronco thing. Doesn't matter. Have a great afternoon. I don't want to know that, doctor. Don't tell me lies. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Don't speak to me smoothly. Speak to me straightforwardly. My life depends on it. My eternal destiny depends on it. Now, if you alerted me to the Wall Street Journal article, and with this I will stop, but if you alerted me to the Wall Street Journal article of a few days ago, thinking you were the only one, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I, I do agree. I appreciate so many of you thinking of me. Only one brought me the hard copy, but that's fine. And, um, and, and the, the, the article in the Wall Street, you remember, began, Europe's empty churches go on sale, right? And it was based, uh, the, the, the greater part of the article had to do with the Netherlands and um, uh, the, the closing of the churches in Europe reflecting a rapid weakening of faith in Europe. It's a long article. I'm not going to quote from it much, except, I, as you would understand, I went looking for, um, for the UK to see what they have to say. The Church of England closes uh, churches uh, every year. In Bristol, England, the former St. Paul's Church has become the Circle Media Circus Training School. Ah, there you go. Operators say the high ceilings are perfect for aerial equipment like trapezes. <laughs> it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good, isn't it? I mean, look at that. It's amazing. You know, interestingly, we have a lady in our congregation whose parents left that church, St. Paul's in Bristol, England, when it started to go below the line. It started to go below the line. They said, well, we couldn't stay in here with this. I said to her this morning when she identified it, I said, you know, if they had not left, you would not be here. She said, you're absolutely right, because ideas of consequences. And in Edinburgh, Scotland, a Lutheran church has become a Frankenstein-themed bar featuring bubbling test tubes, lasers, and a life-size Frankenstein's monster descending from the ceiling at midnight. Scotland was known as the land of the book. And Jason MacDonald, the supervisor of the pub, says he's never heard any complaints about the, the Frankenstein thing. He says it's for one simple reason. There are hundreds and hundreds of old churches, and no one going to them. Some scholars think Americans' future will approach Europe's. And I think the scholars are absolutely right. Apart from a great move of the Spirit of God, like the 18th century awakening, what you've seen when you've gone on your vacation to Europe has given you a little foretaste of what your children or your grandchildren are going to live with in this nation. That's why it's so crucially important to heed the charge and to take up the challenge. See, when we come back next time, we realize that what what Paul's going to say to Timothy is not. So throw in the towel, Timothy. You know, you try and accommodate yourself. No. He's going to say, the harder it gets, the tougher it is, the harder you've got to go at it. 
That's why he told them earlier, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when the response is strong, when the response is pure, you've got to keep going. Do you realize how important it is to pray for young seminarians, to pray for uh, pastors, to, to, to pray for each other, to pray that, that, in the, that in the teaching to our children that there's a fastidious commitment to orthodoxy, that there's no fudging and blurring of the lines, so that these little ones may grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. General Booth of the Salvation Army, you remember they asked him at the end of the 19th century, what are your concerns for the church going into the 20th century? What are the chief dangers confronting the church? And he said, the chief dangers which will confront the church in the coming 20th century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. How, how prescient was that? And then having mentioned Dick Lucas, uh, Dick was uh, working there in London and living there in London, right in the very heart of London, in the shadow of um, uh, Lloyd's of London, which the IRA tried to blow up on a number of occasions. And on one of the occasions, the bomb uh, made a significant impact on St. Helen's Bishop's Gate and actually uh, almost killed uh, uh, the reverend himself. He was, he was very pleased about it, he said, because he had wanted to do some changes in the church for a long time. And because it was a historically listed building, he wasn't allowed to. And the IRA did them a, ter a tremendous favor. And uh, so he was able to tear all the pews out and make all these kinds of changes. But he, as he took me around, he said, and I want you to see this. And he showed me the entryway at one point into the building. And he said this part of the building was left completely untouched. And, and chiseled into the, the, the lintel, the stone lintel above the, uh, the doorway, it said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And, and Dick said, so, so we continue. And so we continue too. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling, to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only wise God our Savior, in glory and majesty, dominion and power, world without end. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. Grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.